Hello, this is the UCLA Housing Voice podcast, and I'm your host, Shane Phillips. This week's episode is with Professor Todd Michney, and we're discussing his recent publications, which re-examine many assumptions and common narratives about the role of the federal government, and particularly the Depression-era Homeowners Loan Corporation, or Hulk, in the development and proliferation of the practice of redlining. While Hulk and redlining are absolutely connected, that connection appears to be a lot less direct and a lot more complicated than previously understood. Part of what makes this topic so interesting to me is that it raises some philosophical questions that I think apply to many domains of housing policy and urban planning. Hulk has culpability in the proliferation of redlining, but probably not as much as is commonly believed. And as Professor Michney's work reveals, there's very little evidence that Hulk treated black homeowners dramatically different from white homeowners, at least on average. So the questions arise, how do we think about an institution that did good as well as bad? What does it mean to revise our understanding of historical institutions, acknowledging that they may not have been quite as bad as we thought, but were still influenced by and helped to spread racist beliefs and practices? How do you tell a story like that without it being interpreted as an exoneration? And maybe asking whether an institution is good or bad isn't even the right question to be asking. I certainly do not know the answer to these questions, but we had a really great discussion with these questions and tensions lying just below the surface. I think you'll enjoy it and you'll get a nice history lesson along the way. The Housing Voice podcast is a production of the UCLA Lewis Center for Regional Policy Studies with production support from Claudia Bustamante and Jason Suteja. As always, feedback and show ideas can go to me at shanephillips at ucla.edu. Now let's get to our conversation with Professor Todd Michney. Todd M. Michney is an associate professor in the School of History and Sociology at Georgia Tech, and he's here to talk about the Homeowners Loan Corporation and what we may have gotten wrong about its historical contributions to the practice of redlining and the segregation and racial disparities in homeownership and household wealth that have persisted into the present day. Todd, welcome to the Housing Voice podcast. Thanks, Shane. It's my pleasure to be here. And Mike Manville is my co-host today. Hey, Mike. Hey, guys. Great to be here. As always, we start off by asking our guests for a quick tour of their hometown or where they currently live, another place they've lived and enjoyed maybe. If you were taking us, I think, uh, Todd, you said you're going to do Cleveland, Ohio. If you were, if we were visiting you, where would you want to take us there? Wow. Well, I always appreciate the chance to uh, introduce people to my hometown. And I actually have led some guided tours around the neighborhoods that I wrote about in my book, Surrogate Suburbs. Those are outlying areas of the city that were built up after 1900. And especially for African-Americans, they serve the function of suburbs for all intents and purposes until the bonafide suburbs became more accessible. So I love to show people around those areas and, and really just to raise the profile of a city, which I think has been um, kind of underappreciated. Any specific recommendations? <laughs> well, some of the places on that tour that uh, we took people would be places like the Cory United Methodist Church, which was a former Jewish synagogue um, built in the 1920s that later hosted the famous um, Ballot or the Bullet speech by Malcolm X mm. in 1964, I believe. There's just many, many uh, wonderful surviving architectural gems 
I've actually got a map I could share uh, of the tour routes and some of the attractions, if that would be something you could use on a website or something like yeah, that. Yeah, we can we can throw it on the show notes. That sounds great. I was going to say that people will have to you know hire you for a tour if they want the rest, but maybe now they can just do a self-guided. Okay, so the title of the article we're discussing here today is New Perspectives on New Deal Housing Policy, Explicating and Mapping Hulk Loans to African Americans. And this is by Todd and his co-author, Ladale Windling, and it's in the Journal of Urban History. He has two other articles that look at the origins of redlining and other New Deal lending policies, as well as the development of the redlining maps themselves. And we're not really going to talk about those in detail today, but they do... Uh, you know, kind of inform and add context to this conversation. So we may make reference to them, and we'll certainly include those in the show notes as well for any interested listeners. So let's talk first about what the Homeowners Loan Corporation existed to do. It was created through an act of Congress in 1933, several years into the Great Depression. Todd, what problems was Hulk created to address, and how did it actually go about trying to solve those problems? Sure. Well, as we know, we were in the middle of a, or actually at the beginning of a Great Depression. Home prices were down about 33% across the board from the peak around 1925. And as of January 1st, 1934, 45% of urban owner-occupied mortgage properties were in default. Mm. So the idea was to simultaneously bail out lenders and help borrowers to get on a more sustainable path toward paying their debt obligations. And we can talk in more details about what getting a mortgage looked like before the New Deal. It's quite onerous. Mm -hmm. But basically, uh, they came up with a uh, arrangement that was on a longer term at a lower interest rate that was self-amortizing, which means the principal was being paid down at the same time uh, along with interest payments. Um, and, and this was something that reformers have been calling for for a long time. And many of those reformers coming straight out of the real estate and home finance industry made their way into these government agencies and were advising that uh, this course be followed. So what Hulk did was um, it was created as a unit of the Federal Home Loan Bank Board, which had been created a couple years earlier under Herbert Hoover. It was basically a, like a Federal Reserve for savings and loans. There were other institutions invited to join, but it was overwhelmingly savings and loans. So if they needed- And savings and loans in this era were sort of the main mortgage lenders, correct? Yes, along with individuals. In fact, um, something like okay. 20, 25% of all mortgage loans were extended by individuals who were looking for places to put their money. Wow. But uh, the largest was savings and loans. And they had a kind of unique way of financing that we could talk about if we really wanted to get into it. But in the 1920s, more financial institutions like commercial banks had started getting involved in residential mortgage lending. Um, insurance companies had started buying up mortgages on a secondary market, so buying the mortgages from the uh, institutions that originated them. And when the Great Depression hit, all that just went you know, drastically down. And there was widespread recognition that you know, we need to fix this somehow. So what Hulk did was it offered um, lenders, who are known as mortgagees, offered them bonds, which were basically the equivalent of U.S. Treasury bonds, mm -hmm. that would cover up to 80% of the value that Hulk appraised for the house. And these were not to exceed $14,000, which is about $310,000 in today's terms. So we're kind of aiming at the, what would we say, maybe upper middle to the lower end of the housing market. 
And the appraisals, um, uh, this was discovered by an economist, Jonathan Rose, who's done a lot of amazing work on the Hulk. These appraisals or these these amounts that were offered to lenders and, and the appraisals themselves were really on the high end in order to entice participation by the lenders. Mm-hmm. Um, because initially, you know, no one had tried this before. There were some disputes about whether they're issuing these kinds of bonds would, would even be legal in some states. And uh, oh, also by kind of aiming at the high end, not only would it make lenders more willing to participate in the program, it made it less likely that that uh, borrowers would be able to reduce their principal payments. So, um, you know, the idea of a write down that we've seen in more recent mm. mortgage crises was kind of alleviated by setting these purposefully high. And a lot of these borrowers, uh, like in more recent mortgage crises, did owe more than the actual appraised value. But most of these uh, lenders were satisfied. Only 18% of them refused to exchange um, these mortgages for these bonds that Hulk was offering. This was a, a point of clarification I was interested in because I think my view of like what problem Hulk was trying to solve is kind of colored by the more recent experience with the Great Recession and the housing crash then when... It was certainly true that a lot of people, because they had lost their jobs, just couldn't afford to pay their mortgages anymore. But it seems like even more than that, in this more recent era, the, the problem was being underwater on your mm-hmm. loan and just like having a lot of you know reason to, to walk away rather than try to pay that really large balance. It sounds like that wasn't necessarily the main problem in this time during the Great Depression. And it was more maybe just you know unemployment, lower incomes, and people just couldn't afford to pay their mortgages, whether they were above or, or, or below water and you know whether the principal exceeded the value or not. Right, right. I think that's a, a good question to ask. I think that the main thing was that people weren't in a position to, to pay, to continue paying. So they were mm-hmm. you know, thinking of walking away. So I guess we could say they were underwater in that sense. And that would throw a large number of houses onto the market at the same time. You have to recall that this was a much more um, exploitative housing market coming in into the Great Depression. And so mm. probably a lot of lenders had decided they'd made enough money off of these already, even if there were borrowers who owed more than 80% of the appraised value. Many of these lenders decided that they'd made enough money and they just wanted to clear their books. And especially with regard to African-American borrowers, I would mention that that'll come up later mm. that then as now African-Americans were more vulnerable to exploitative arrangements. And most of the lenders agreed, to, obviously, to exchange um, for these bonds instead of trying to hold people to their obligations. Got it. So to give our listeners the proper context for your article and your interpretation of this history, let's first have you tell us the story someone is most likely to hear about Hulk, the Homeowners Loan Corporation, and redlining and Hulk's culpability in housing market discrimination and the racially disparate outcomes that were sort of downstream of that discrimination. And again, just to be clear for our listeners, the historical interpretation I'm asking Todd to share right now is one that he's disputing in some ways in his own research, but I want to make sure we start with an understanding of this this kind of better known narrative before we start chipping away at it. I do want to answer this question. I realize I didn't give you a complete answer to the previous one. Would you like me to elaborate sure, here sure. closer to it? So once Hulk was established, uh, about 40% of all the borrowers that were in uh, distress on their mortgages applied for aid, and that was 1.9 million 
uh, American homeowners. And Hulk approved the applications for and successfully refinanced the mortgages for about $1 million. But even with this aid, uh, again, this reminds us we are still in a Great Depression. 19% of these uh, Hulk borrowers or mortgagers ultimately defaulted. And that meant that Hulk hmm. acquired uh, 194,000 properties through foreclosure. And these were um, actually sold off sometimes through what were called purchase money mortgages. These were basically seller-financed mortgages, kind of like a land contract. And non-delinquent Hulk borrowers paid down their obligation, uh, which were 15-year loans at 5%. And so that this whole program wound down by 1951. That's 15 years after the initial loans were closed in 1936. So the likely story that many people have probably heard is that Hulk maps and their blatantly racist accompanying area descriptions, as they were called, were used to deny black homeowners access to mortgage financing and were thereby a means to disinvest in urban neighborhoods where black people lived. There's a widespread assumption that Hulk maps were shared widely with private industry, which then used these actual maps to deny people mortgages. And there's a further kind of leap from that to argue that these these maps, these particular maps made by the Homeowners Loan Corporation directly caused disparities that persist to this day, whether we're talking about financial in the form of the racial wealth gap, um, educational, health in terms of pollution sites, green space, air quality. So, you know, there's a there's a rather direct uh, line being drawn between these maps and these negative outcomes. So now to take a step back and start to explore why that story might be wrong or, or at least missing some important facts, not telling the whole story. Could you explain for us the two phases of Hulk's history as you've written about them in this article, the rescue phase and the consolidation phase? And we can get to why this is important in short order here, but I think we just first need to understand how Hulk's mandate or strategy changed over time. Absolutely. Well, the first thing I would say is that Hulk could not have used these maps uh, to deny its own mortgage refinancing loans because it had made essentially all of those loans, in fact, 97% of, of those loans, before it even began making these maps. Also, to the best of our knowledge, Hulk did not share these maps with private industry. In fact, we have evidence of them stating they were not sharing these maps um, with private industry as late as 1942. It did, however, share them with the Federal Housing Administration, another government uh, housing-related agency that did refuse to insure mortgages in all racially mixed areas and the overwhelming majority of black neighborhoods around the country. So basically what we're saying uh, in our research here is that the means of transmitting the methodology of redlining was more indirect. And in fact, there were a number of means whereby Hulk did transmit this knowledge of the maps and the methodology and racist assumptions underlying them. So we can talk about that more in a little bit. But as for the rescue and consolidation phases, Hulk had these two distinct aspects um, uh, to its operations that had a slight chronological overlap. So the first rescue phase uh, ran from 1933 to 1936, and it refers to the issuance of its mortgages, uh, its mortgage refinancing loans. The second Consolidation phase from 1936 to 1951 refers to uh, the managing of its inventory, the, the, the homes that it acquired. So mm -hmm. servicing, um, collecting loan payments, acquiring delinquent properties through foreclosure, 
and then renting, maintaining, and selling those properties. So there is a slight overlap um, between the two phases, and I'll explain um, you know, what that is. Hulk was accepting applications for its loans for 19 months. That was from June 1933 to November 1934, and from May to June 1935. So it had an initial uh, period, and then Congress intervened and opened it up for more applications. Uh, and the ultimate deadline was June 1935 to put in an application. That's an amazingly short period of time for Hulk to have become such a, a big player in the mortgage market. Absolutely. And that helps explain why there was such a rush to get all these loans you know, uh, approved and to, to demonstrate some political results, which we could also talk about because that was you know, one reason why there was no kind of effort to, to, to make racial uh, – to, to deny people on the basis of race. Um, but we can talk more about the reasons that we see for black people getting Hulk loans. So that was the deadline for uh, applications, June 1935, and all the loans were closed by June 1936. And they did not – Hulk did not start making these maps until uh, the, the Mortgagee Rehabilitation Division was established in August 1935. And so, the first agents went into the field in the fall of 1935. The first maps start coming out in uh, January, February 1936. And that was only for the first batch of cities. So, you can imagine – you know, that's where this percentage of 97% of the loans already being issued before the maps were even uh, started and available um, comes from. I just want to highlight some of what Todd just said, because I think it just right off the bat is an important framing mechanism for this discussion and, and injects some nuance into what a lot of discussions of redlining uh, amount to in sort of you know, the sort of capital D housing discourse, or, or even, you know, in my experience as someone who teaches some urban planning courses, I think there's kind of two layers of discussion of redlining, you know, that, that occur. One of them, I think, is the sort of story that Todd just really nicely summarized, right? Which is that there's an under, there's a, there's a sense that when we see the redlining maps today, the Hulk redlining maps, and then also look at present day outcomes that there's a, a, a strong causal line being drawn as opposed to perhaps a correlation, right? That, that because we see in areas that are redlined, that we're redlined today, they have worse health outcomes, worse economic outcomes, that the map itself must have played a direct role in that. And, but I think it, it actually goes even further than that, which is to say that in a lot of discussions that use the term redlining, redlining has become something sort of divorced from any historical context at all. That, that people use it to describe almost any policy that might have an adverse, racially disparate impact on geographic investment. You know, it's very common. I was just talking to a reporter not long ago, and I forget exactly what she was describing. And she said, well, you know, don't you think this is just redlining 2.0? And I said, how are you using that term? And she just said, you know, she was very candid. She said, very loosely. <laughs> um, and I think, that, you know, there's a what, what's been lost a little bit is this idea that the drawing these maps, you know, redlining by both the, the, the Hulk and the FHA. And I think it's going to be worth worth hearing Todd, you know, draw that distinction out a little bit more. It was an actual historical process that where some things happened and some things didn't um, and that we can draw some conclusions about what it caused and some conclusions about perhaps what. You know, I think Todd's research really does a great job of showing that the Hulk maps, in many respects, 
reflected the the biases built into the private market at that time, you know, and, and in that respect are a, a tremendous historical record of a, of a system just where bias was just pervasive. But maybe let, you know, say a little bit less about like what the Hulk actually caused, you know, which is not to say that they didn't do anything bad at all. You know, that that's not the point. But I do think this 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 sort of top level of un, of misunderstanding about redlining because the the term is so charged um, is really worth clarifying all of this. I think you're absolutely right, Michael. That people use redlining uh, in quotes as a kind of shorthand for a variety of phenomena having to do with urban disinvestment. And on the one hand, that's not counterproductive because it is a recognition that all these things tend to work together, that they were widespread, that the government was involved. But you know, it depends if we want to try and be more specific. Let's say we wanted to put together a legal case for reparations. That's when we need to be very, very specific about who did the redlining, um, you know, what s- sorts of practices are we talking about? Because really the Hulk maps are really just the best surviving example in its entirety of of these. Now, every bank would have had a map in its back room showing where it would or would not lend mortgages, you know, starting from this period and going into the 1960s and maybe beyond, you know, beyond 1968 when this was made technically um, illegal. It's just that it's very hard to get our hands on private bank records. Those may not have to be turned over. They're often thrown out. They just don't make their way into archives. So, yes, I think there's a need for specificity when we need to be specific, but also it's good to recognize that there's compounding effects from these kinds of urban disinvestment. One final thing I would also mention is that Hulk itself didn't actually uh, invent this technology. Apparently, it was life insurance companies in the 1920s that were starting to make mortgage investments on properties that were located uh, perhaps across the country, and they're making them sight unseen. As we were saying earlier, the savings and loan industry found it pretty easy to keep track of its mortgages because those were made usually in the surrounding neighborhoods on a face-to-face basis. When you're a life insurance company lending on properties perhaps across the country, they were looking for ways to do that from a distance. And that's where these um, practices and technology first originated and were carried into the government by people from private industry that it had uh, either pioneered or were familiar with these uh, methods. That's interesting. It's almost like we talk a lot now about algorithms and their role in perpetuating bias in the approval of mortgages and so forth. And, you know, these sort of like fintech companies that are working on almost developing like another level of abstraction or, or separation from the actual neighborhood or the, the lender themselves. And so it, it's very interesting to think of like this progression where this actually maybe started sort of with savings and loans or even before that, maybe these individual lenders and then savings and loans are kind of doing the whole neighborhood, life insurance companies and others are doing entire country uh, and, and all the way up into the present day. I did want to kind of this this isn't in this paper, but in your roots of redlining paper, just thinking about the the, the connection between the public sector and the private sector here. This really comes through in that Roots of Redlining paper, how interwoven they are and how, in many cases, the the folks in the public sector came directly from the private sector, from the savings and loans and other institutions. And I was just hoping you could kind of talk about that a little bit and maybe what that, what that meant, what that represented. Absolutely. Well, 
a lot of times the debate uh, has come down to who's most culpable. Is FHA more culpable than FHA? Um, is private industry more culpable than the government? And what uh, Ladale Winley and I discovered is that you know really these are all kind of um, there's a fluid movement of people from the private sector into government and back again. And when mm-hmm. you really just see how thoroughly intertwined public and private were and how much communication there was between both Hulk, FHA, private industry organizations like the Society of, of Residential Appraisers, the American Institute of Real Estate Appraisers, the National Association of Real Estate Boards, the U.S. Uh, Savings and Loan League, it just it, it, it presents a different perspective where you can't really so easily place blame. They're all uh, thoroughly implicated um, in having participated in bringing this about. You think of someone like uh, Frederick Babcock, who was the initial uh, head of underwriting operations at the Federal Housing Administration. He'd worked in the life insurance industry prior to this and probably mm-hmm. so had seen these kinds of maps. Um, Corwin Fergus, who ran the city survey project and was head of the mortgagee rehabilitation division, was a realtor and um, savings and loan liquidator in the state of Ohio before he took this government position. Philip Knisgren was a mortgage um, banker who then uh, designed the appraisal procedures for the home uh, home owners loan corporation and then went back out and became a mortgage um, banker again afterwards. So, it doesn't become – it's like a moving target. You can't so easily place blame when people are moving in and out of, of public and private. And it's not really clear which is influencing the other. Mm-hmm. It seems as though private industry influenced government and then government used its kind of nationwide reach to further ingrain these practices even and on an even more widespread basis. Yeah, yeah. The idea that – I mean, I think there's almost a sense that like the private sector – People who are associated with the private sector are only associated with the private sector and people who are associated with the public sector are only associated with that. And of course, people are moving back and forth between those things. And that's not actually necessarily a bad thing. Like we want people with experience to be kind of moving between and and having that influence. But yeah, I I think it's just a really important point to make that there and just helps illustrate why it's so hard to assign blame, you know, to one sector or another. I think it's worth spending some time on where all this Hulk research is coming from, in part because it might help illustrate what was missed in earlier analyses and and why. It's my understanding that studies from earlier years, earlier decades, relied mainly on the discovery of these residential security maps, aka redlining maps, that were commissioned by Hulk. So in a sense, you're seeing the final product in those maps, but not how they came about or how they were used. And... As you've talked about, there was a presumption that because these maps existed, they must have been influencing lending decisions all across the country, even in in the private sector. Then, in addition to those maps, there was a sort of main set of text records from the agency itself, which have also been a resource researchers and historians have used. But you go one step further by reviewing what are known as the general correspondence records, and these give a more detailed and localized perspective on the decision-making inside individual Hulk offices in its early years. This is the kind of information that historians are trained to dig up and often gets overlooked by other kinds of social scientists. And I was hoping you could give us an overview of what these different sources are and what they can tell us from the correspondence of these individual offices all the way through to these maps themselves. 
And I guess I'm sort of interested in this history in two ways. On one hand, what is the research value overall of these different sources? And on the other, what's the more recent history of how these sources have been used and how has our understanding of Hulk's role in housing market discrimination been changed by this progressively deeper and more detailed historical analysis? Well, different sorts of records can tell us different things. And we're looking at different facets of a very, very large effort. Hulk had refinanced the mortgages on a million properties. It had 11 regions. It had state offices. It had offices in every city. And we're, you know, we're talking about a workforce of tens of thousands uh, at its peak. So historians have tried to get a handle on how to tell this story. The first actual treatment of the Homeowners Loan Corporation was by um, C. Lowell Harris with the National Bureau of Economic Research. And how, how far back was that? I think it was 1951. Okay, yeah, uh, so right around going, the time that it, yeah, right around far. the time that it, um, that it wound down its operations. Mm -hmm. And he uh, was an economist by training. Probably didn't look at any manuscript records of the corporation, which hadn't even entered the you know records of the National Archives at that point. They did have a sample of Hulk loans for three states that amounted to some three thousand different loans, and um, he had access to newspaper clippings and things like that. But he told a very top-down um, um, overview. There's no mention of African Americans um, at all in his book, except to say that they had very low rates of property ownership, so they weren't really an important constituency for the Hulk. So really, the big breakthrough came when, when Kenneth Jackson discovered the security maps. And I had the pleasure to interview him, and we narrowed down that this must have been in January 1977. Because he told me he was in Washington, D.C. for President Jimmy Carter's inauguration. And at that mm -hmm. time, historians were just allowed to wander the, uh, uh, the, the stacks at the National Archives. And he saw these ledgers up on a shelf and took them down and looked at them. And they were the residential security maps. So that kind of got him thinking and uh, worked its way into several articles published in 1980 and uh, his book, uh, Crabgrass Frontier, which came out in 1985. And you know there are hundreds of boxes of textual records that document various uh, aspects of Hulk's operations at the National Archives, which you can look through. And people have um, gone through various portions of those um, one would be Amy Hillier, who's, who revisited this around 2001 and came to some conclusions that were at odds with Jackson. For one, she was the first to really uh, prove that Hulk had lent to African-American borrowers. Some other people like Jim Greer, who's an independent researcher with the um, Federal Reserve, uh, looked through the uh, speeches and the minutes of the Federal Home Loan Bank Board. So that told us some other mm -hmm. things we hadn't known. But what I found and really used more extensively than anyone had uh, are the general administrative correspondence of the Hulk, which was uh, microfilmed. The records were microfilmed during World War II and then destroyed. And they exist on 486 reels of microfilm with no finding aid. <laughs> they're organized by they're organized Fun. by Hulk region by state, um, and they're in That's three something, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's very daunting. It it literally took me six years to find my way through these records and discern how they're organized and be able to start to anticipate where I might find records. 
So I initially used them for the article we're talking about today, and I was able to look through the uh, Atlanta, uh, Georgia regional office, which also administered Alabama and I believe Mississippi. And I was able to get some sense of how administrators thought in racial terms and how they dealt with black borrowers. But when I really got excited was when I came across a folder, microfilm folder that said Mortgagee Rehabilitation Division. And Hmm. they were clearly talking about making the security maps. So using that, I was able to anticipate where in the other reels I might find this. And I was able to find ultimately about a thousand pages of documentation that spanned the country. So it wasn't localized just to one area. It's not everything that was presumably there. And there may still be more material on those microfilm reels. But again, there's no finding aid. So you have to just uh, flip through it and see what you can find yourself. A couple researchers had uh, attempted to use this. The only one that really did so with any uh, productive results was Ocean Howell, who uh, wrote on San Francisco. And uh, Ocean Howell is actually the one to uh, note this discrepancy of timing between the uh, rescue phase and the consolidation phase. Mm. And he also noted that Mexican-Americans were evaluated very differently in different cities in California. And these were all by the same field agent, um, Theodore Bowden, who had been to San Francisco and Los Angeles and other cities on the West Coast. And in each city, there was a somewhat different assessment of Mexican-Americans and and their influence on property values as they understood it. So they're more or less racist toward Mexican-Americans, depending on whether we're talking San Francisco, where they were relatively less so, versus uh, Los Angeles, where they're very much so. And so that raised questions in his mind as to like, why is the same guy evaluating these neighborhoods um, differently in different cities? And it turns out they were, in many cases, following the um, assessments of local lenders and real estate Mm. people, especially in large cities where you really um, didn't have any other choice but to do that. So that's really kind of what brings us up to where we are today, mapping inequality, the digital history project that has scanned many, but not most of the uh, maps that were eventually made, or many of the maps that once existed, um, have made those shapefiles available so that people can do quantitative research. But again, I think, you know, really, you have to go down to the really granular archival level to get a real sense of uh, how these decisions were being made and to kind of avoid the pitfall of drawing these kind of um, unsubstantiated assumptions about you know who was sharing the maps with whom, how they were using them. And that's really what I tried to do in my most recent article is to figure out how did Hulk actually use these uh, maps. Yeah, that's incredible. Thank you for putting in that work because <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure anyone else that's is going to do it. That's my job. <laughs> <laughs> and so, I think, go ahead, Mike. You know, re- related to that, that last point you made, Todd, and I think, you know, Professor Hillier, if I'm not mistaken, was also one of the first people to raise the idea that maybe not that many people actually saw the maps once they were done. Um, and I, and I, that sounds like a, a question you can sort of shed some light on. I think the other the other comment I wanted to make or, or point you made that I wanted to highlight, it, it, just that in reading your article, I was really struck by the extent to which in many of these cities, Hulk was expecting a, a relatively small staff to really do an enormous task. You know, and it, as you as you suggested, just the idea that you could parachute into Los Angeles and then 
you know, assess the, 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 the risk of different lending in different neighborhoods. And I think as the correspondent, you, the correspondence you present shows, I mean, they, they almost had no choice, but to really depend on the appraisers who were uh, working there already. And then of course, that dependence is going to come with its own form of double-edged sword, right? These people know the neighborhoods, but they also have, as you suggest, like, you know, real biases. Absolutely. So I think that's two questions. And so the first is about Amy Hillier's significance and how she qualified uh, Kenneth Jackson's work. So as I mentioned earlier, one was to prove that African-American borrowers were getting loans. She was actually able to go to some ledger books of savings and loans run by African-Americans in Philadelphia and find Hulk loans on their books. And another was to question how widespread the distribution of these maps was. Because Kenneth Jackson had assumed, and he admitted, if you read a footnote, he couldn't prove this, but he uh, believed that Hulk had directly shared these maps with FHA, which they did. Um, I kind of put the um, closure on that. They shared one full set of all these maps with, with the Federal Housing Administration, and they were in constant contact during the process of making the maps. But he also assumed that these were distributed to private industry because it seems as though private industry was familiar with these four security grades that Hulk designated on the maps and which FHA also designated on its own maps. So she questioned that. For one thing, there's a document uh, with the finding aid for the uh, Hulk records in the National Archives. That's a, a memo from circa 1942 where they say explicitly that these maps have not been shared with private interest, despite many, many requests from the public that is familiar with their existence. So basically what's happening there is Hulk is going out in the field and it's using private industry consultants to complete this project, but then telling them we can't give you the final uh, <laughs> copies of these maps. Right. And people still were asking for that. And there were a couple of cases where they slipped out. My most humorous one that I uncovered was in Waco, Texas, um, a field agent had lent some local realtors a draft map and that realtor uh, traced the image onto one of their own maps. And when the field agent came in, he saw a, a reproduction mm -hmm. of the Hulk map on the wall. And he said, what am I going to do? After all, I'm coming to these men, and they were almost universally men, and, and asking them you know, to help us. I can't demand that he give us that map. Uh, so, But uh, you know, the official line was that these maps are not to be shared. But that doesn't mean that they weren't um, – their existence wasn't known. And it really was a kind of um, shoestring operation for the first year of the project. There were 13 field agents. That was one for each region and two in the two regions that made up the Northeast and uh, Mid-Atlantic. And they uh, seem to have had uh, junior field agents as well. Um, and they had a Washington office staff. But you know, this was a very small um, effort to do what turns out to be a, a big data project, my colleague Ladell Winling and his um, other co-authors have called this on in a different publication, a big data project from the 1930s. Yeah, I mean, and, and I think just to, to add on to that or, or to follow up, it seems to me that 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 arrangement, you know, of a few field agents and then some some local people from industry would explain or, or could help explain why so many people in private industry were familiar with the color coding even if Hulk did not subsequently share the maps because prominent members of that private community helped draw the maps. 
There's also the possibility that Amy Hillier raised in her dissertation where she said that the government could have said, we have these four ratings, these four grades, and here's the definition of each grade. Now, can you categorize your loans according to this? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's a big jump to assume that, you know, they were familiar with the actual maps or had seen them and then that they were given actual copies of the maps. Right. So that's why Amy Hillier's work is important. She started questioning, um, you know, whether there might be more nuance here. But I think her, her work often gets couched um, somewhat unfairly as, as, as attempting to absolve the Hulk. I'm not sure that's entirely fair, but that's something I want to really avoid um, in my own. Because politically, mm-hmm. I think that's a no, uh, a non-starter. I, I think that it's obvious that all these government agencies were thoroughly implicated in these kinds of racist ways of thinking and spreading this methodology of redlining, even if they weren't giving out the actual maps themselves. Um, They were showing them in public on occasion, as I'll get to in a minute. They were holding workshops where they trained people in the best practices and the most modern ways of thinking about real estate, which included taking race into account. So there are many, many other ways that Hulk and FHA were were culpable, even if they weren't directly handing out copies of these things to private industry. Yeah, I mean, I think that's very well said, and it's an important point. It's just that you know the the task of the historian and the, and the social scientist is, you know, on some level, you know, to really figure out with as much specificity as possible, you know, what actually happened, um, and that is a valuable thing to do. That's why we're all in this business. But you know, it if it seems like what occurred was not by some people's lights, as bad as they had previously believed, that is a far cry from saying it was good, right? But, you know, so there's real value in understanding exactly what happened, but I think it would be a huge leap and an inappropriate leap to then therefore say, well, you know, Hulk was fine, or this was a a positive development in the history of the United States, which of course we know it was not. One thing I wanted to point out here, a great thing that you do in your paper is to actually draw on the kind of public response of leading contemporary black newspapers and other organizations and how they responded to the creation of the Hulk. And you note that, you know, starting in 1933, when it was created, the response was quite positive. These black led organizations made explicit comparisons of Hulk to other federal programs and practices. And so, you know, this is probably partly about juxtaposing against much worse things. So even if this wasn't perfect, it was an improvement in some ways. And these organizations worked very hard to encourage black homeowners to take advantage of what Hulk was offering. Could you talk a bit about how black institutions and community leaders viewed this refinancing program at that time, at least during the rescue phase as it was getting started, and maybe why they had higher hopes for it despite such unfair and discriminatory treatment by other federal and local agencies? For me, this was one of the most striking findings in the article. Uh, especially because we hadn't tried so hard to hear African American voices assessing, you know, what was the significance of these programs and how they were received. It helps that ProQuest digitized uh, a large span of historic African American newspapers that we can now keyword search. So mm. I've been able to put in Hulk or homeowners loan as keyword searches and find mentions. That would have really escaped an earlier generation of historians. Maybe even Amy Hillier, I think, was using things like clippings files to, to get at this information. But I would describe the reception of African-American organizations and newspaper uh, journalists as ranging from a kind of wait and see to openly promoting this. 
with the idea that we need to take advantage of this because if we don't at least try, we'll have no one to blame but ourselves if we don't get anything. And it was noted from the very beginning uh, by some observers that, hey, they ask the race of the borrower, what's up with that? Mm -hmm. There was some skepticism, especially in Republican uh, affiliated papers, because African-Americans have historically voted Republican. Some of them were skeptical just of the intentions of uh, the Democratic Party in promoting this program. But there's this idea that we should at least try to uh, apply and see what happens. And I think an important question here is, you know, whether those positive impressions of Hulk were actually justified, at least in in the rescue phase. How did Hulk perform during those first few years with respect to racial equity? That's really the core of, of this paper and, and the question you're answering. So what did that look like? Well, there's different ways to get at this question. And the first one that we kind of looked at was, how did the distribution of loans, Hulk loans, look, taking into account the kind of relative proportions of black homeownership and white homeownership? And historically, and this trend has remained very durable into the present day, African-American homeownership rates are about one half that of white American homeownership rates. And so even though homeownership rates have gone up over time, um, it's still about, you know, there's a significant racial gap in terms of homeownership. So one thing to explain the, the, the smaller number of Hulk loans um, that went to African-Americans is that there are fewer numbers of black homeowners. We wanted to look and see, first of all, in the aggregate, how did that look? And we found out that African-Americans got um, 95% of what we would expect based on their percentage of homeownership. So in other words, you'd have to look at the article to see the actual uh, percentages, but they were only 5% off based on um, the percentage of, homeowner, of, of homeowners loan corporation loans that went to black people from the percentage of African-American homeowners in the overall set of, of homeowners. And mm -hmm. then if you, this, if you look- This isn't the actual numbers in the paper, but this would be like if 20% of homes were owned by black households, 19% of Hulk's mortgages would have gone to black homeowners. Right. So just- Five percent lower, right? And I think uh, you know you're raising some uh, important questions about why is there a lower black homeownership rate in the first place? Right. Um, what uh, you know, we can only look at this for 1940, which is already well into the program. Um, so there's limitations on the conclusions we can draw. But even more interesting, when we looked um, on the local level, we were interested to look for individual cities to see how did the um, Black Access to Home Owners Loan Corporation loans look. And we found a, a, a significant variation uh, depending on the city uh, on whether African-Americans were able to get significant numbers of these loans or not. And we have a, a kind of map graph in the article that arrays uh, cities by, I guess that's longitude, isn't it? I'm not sure. <laughs> from, east, from east to west. Yes. And so you can see like um, an access uh, ratio of one being equitable, which cities are above the line and which are below the line. So as we move from east to west, you can get a sense of, of what that access looked like. And we also have the relative size of the black homeowning population in each of those cities um, as part of the graph. So it's kind of a nifty visualization that um, I'm kind of proud of. But just to kind of give an overall sense, there are some outliers, for example, like Jersey City, New Jersey, and uh, Omaha, Nebraska. You could also include St. Paul, Minnesota, or Boston, Massachusetts, where it looks like African-Americans are getting pretty good access. They're actually getting more than twice of what we would expect 
Um, and in the case of Jersey City, three times what we would expect based on the percentage of the homeowning population. But these were mm. very, very small populations of black homeowners and of black people more generally in some of these places like St. Paul uh, and Omaha. Uh, so really where you want to look is in significant centers of black homeownership um, and places where there were large numbers of um, African-Americans and especially African-American homeowners. So um, we can look to places like Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, Detroit, Houston, and Los Angeles, which were um, all equitable access ratio um, in terms of, of, of Hulk access. And to a, a somewhat lesser extent, uh, Atlanta and Birmingham also uh, had favorable access along those lines. But then there were also some cities that had large black homeowning populations that got less than equitable access. Those are places like Memphis, Chicago, Nashville, Jackson, and Richmond. And it seems um, to me, no coincidence, the two worst places for Hulk access were Tulsa and Oklahoma City, mm. although their black home-only populations were considerably smaller than those previous cities I mentioned. So you really do see a um, considerable variation. And we think this comes down to you know, the demographic balance, the uh, different mix of financial institutions. Some of these cities had a substantial number of black-owned financial institutions where African-Americans were more likely to get uh, fair uh, financing. Mm -hmm. So th there's there's a lot of different um, factors you would want to take into consideration if you are going to try and explain why do we set, see such different uh, outcomes. And there were also some places where uh, local Hulk staffers were noted to be racist. So places like Cincinnati and Memphis. In Cincinnati, there was a case we mentioned in the article where uh, they're actually flagging applications from uh, African-Americans and setting them to the side. And in Memphis, um, the local Hulk administrator made the statement that African-Americans were not going to be considered for this program. So there, there is a possibility that individual racist administrators also had a um, role in how serious of consideration these applications got. Mm -hmm. And I do think, given that this is sort of at some level overturning or questioning longer standing views on how Hulk lended and, and how discriminatory they were in their practices. I think it makes sense to interrogate the data a little bit here and ask some questions that people are, are likely to come up with. You know, the first would maybe be more of uh, an accounting question. This data, as you said, is from 1940, but Hulk's rescue phase, as you call it, was from 1933 to 1936. So I'm just going to ask these questions one after another, and I'll let you <laughs> answer at the end. But with that one, is it possible that by 1940, for example, maybe a larger share of white households had paid off their mortgages or shifted them away from Hulk or otherwise got their loans off of Hulk's balance sheet for any number of reasons, you know, favorable treatment because they were hired back faster, you know, into the into the Great Depression and so forth. My second question would be more about need. As you say, the share of mortgages issued to black households by Hulk was roughly proportional to the share of homes owned by black households. But is it possible, though, that black homeowners were hit harder by the Great Depression? And so if mortgages had been issued equitably or according to need, black homeowners actually would have been overrepresented. And third, and this is somewhat related, is it possible that white homeowners were more likely to have their homes paid off even before the Great Depression? So that they didn't need their homes refinanced, even if their neighborhoods were hit, you know, no more or less hard by the economic crisis. So those are just some things that came to my mind uh, that I was curious if you had a way of addressing or, you know, were things that you'd considered in this research. 
Absolutely. Those are all extremely uh, good and important questions to ask. And again, we need to remember that this is a racially structured, unequal housing market where people don't always have you know the same access um, and black people don't have the same access that white borrowers have uh, to get mortgages. So even if you're giving everybody uh, you know an equitable shot, it's not accounting for the inequitable practices that put people um, where they find themselves in the first place. That's mm-hmm. why we have you know black homeowners with half the homeownership rate of uh, white homeowners. But to answer your first question, it's it's certainly true that white borrowers may have been more able to pay off their Hulk loans by 1940. I would note, however, that these loans were on very generous terms really beyond anything that had been previously um, available. They were self-amortizing, so you were paying down the principal um, along with the interest. And you even were allowed to pay interest only for the first three years so that these didn't really start coming due. So maybe people would have um, seen this as not their first priority to, to pay off. There was no mm-hmm. There was no penalty for prepayment. Um, in fact, the first mortgager to pay off their Hulk loan was a black woman, uh, Mrs. Susie Mae Rakestraw of Macon, Georgia. The economy was still struggling, so most white borrowers as well as black borrowers might not have seen improved economic circumstances until World War II. So that's mm-hmm. another reason why they might not have paid these off significantly uh, sooner. And then for your second question, certainly black borrowers had a greater need and were likely overrepresented um, among mortgage properties in distress. And this was not just because of their greater economic need, because black people definitely had um, not equal access to jobs um, and didn't make as much money as a group. But also, they were more readily exploited by creditors, what we call predatory lending today. So um, more of their loans would have been driven toward default by the exploitative terms that they had signed up for. So again, this is bringing us back to we need to really understand Hulk as a giveaway to lenders, a bailout for lenders as much as it was a boon um, to borrowers. And then your um, third question, I guess I would just say it, it's it, it's also possible, but it's kind of a counterfactual, so we can't really measure that. If more white people didn't even need to take advantage of Hulk, that certainly was the case, but we don't really have a way to measure that other than just to note that you know the white homeownership rate was – uh, twice that of the black rate. Mm-hmm. And I think the only thing I would add is to to really highlight um, the point you made about Hulk sort of really feeling an obligation to helping the lenders, right? Which is that I think that the, the questions Shane raises are all strike me as eminently plausible. But just if we assume for the sake of argument that none of them are correct, and this goes back to the point you made earlier, the fact that the Hulk had in some ways some racially progressive effects shouldn't lead us to then conclude that it was a, a racially progressive organization run by racial progressives, right? It, it, mm-hmm. it may right. just have been that in their cost-benefit, discharging their primary obligation to the lenders meant that they were going to help some African-American homeowners. Mm. Yeah, I think all these three questions qualify the findings to the extent that really what we're looking at, even with all the caveats that we've included in the article, we're looking at kind of a best-case scenario and it's still, you know, it still is the case that African Americans didn't have an equal shot and that they didn't benefit from this program as much as white people um, were in a position to. One thing that this reminded me of as I was reading it was the debates and the research around voter ID laws, which have been enacted in a lot of mostly Republican led states 
as a way to, frankly, disenfranchise more left-leaning voters. And that has, in turn, disproportionately impacted non-white voters, including African-Americans. And despite these laws creating additional barriers to voting, my understanding is that they haven't actually depressed voting all that much. And I bring this up because part of why they haven't depressed voting, or it seems to be the case, as much as you'd expect, is because there's been this counter-mobilization on the part of left-leaning voters and democratic organizations and so forth. So you could look at this and say, you know, all the complaints about voter ID laws are, are bogus, you know, look at the voting rates. But my response would be that it's wrong for us to create barriers that disproportionately impact the rights and privileges of some groups on the basis of race or political views in this case, and that they shouldn't have to work harder just to take advantage of those rights and privileges, even if they are ultimately able to successfully overcome those barriers. So, you know, similarly here, we would want to know whether whole clones were distributed proportionately because black homeowners were treated equally or because they put in exceptional individual and organizational effort to achieve those equal outcomes. And so I just want to kind of note that the fact that we see roughly equal proportions of Hulk loans, and you've already kind of made this point, Todd, but I just wanted to really underline it, that doesn't mean that there was fair treatment and you know it might have required a lot of extra work on the part of African-American homeowners and, and organizations to even get to that 95%, you know, almost parity level. Right. No, it's a, it's a, it's a long running theme in the African-American experience that um, African-Americans have to work twice as hard or be twice as good to get the equal recognition, mm -hmm. if that, and that can be really exhausting. You have to constantly be organizing and you can't, uh, you know, put down your guard at any moment and just assume that things have been fixed because things can always get worse. They have to always fight for what you deserve. And so this is another case uh, of that, like the voting ID laws that, uh, example that you brought up. As we get near the end here, I want to talk a little bit about motivations. There are a lot of possible explanations for why black homeowners received mortgages in rough proportion to their share of homeownership. And I was hoping you could just Tell us some of the ones you think are the most important or most revealing or most plausible at both the national and the local level. Well, I think the biggest takeaway from our article is one that other scholars have, have also uh, noted. And I think that we need to really flip our understanding of, of the Hulk and, and, and understand it as a, as a bailout for, for lenders. There are economic historians who are coming around to this, like Judge Glock just wrote a recent book that certified this interpretation, uh, Jonathan Rose that I've mentioned earlier as another economic historian. So that's really the, the big one, that this was a bailout for lenders that uh, served the purposes of economic recovery more broadly. And it did so in a way that did not challenge the, the color line. There were some other reasons we explored in the article that came up based on the evidence that were kind of interesting. I think we've already talked a bit about um, African-Americans themselves on an individual level and uh, on an organizational level, pushing for access is another mm -hmm. important one. Uh, another one is the um, political imperative to get the Hulk up and running and to show results. There's evidence it was rushed that we present in the article and that you know they weren't really always doing their due diligence uh, in terms of 
checking the backgrounds of, of borrowers. They mainly just wanted to demonstrate some um, uh, effect as quickly as possible. This was passed during the first 100 days of New Deal legislation, that famous period mm-hmm. when so many uh, new laws went on the books. And I think we, we kind of see that echoed a little bit with the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act following the Great Recession and the the funding bills passed during the COVID pandemic as well, where it's just, you know, rather than be a little too, and actually maybe that was a lesson from the Great Recession mm. that we took into COVID was like, maybe we shouldn't be so careful about how we spend our money and like, let's focus on the recovery first. And we'd rather overspend than, than underspend and, and draw out this recovery longer. Yeah, the troubled assets program, I, I think maybe they could have, um, well, first of all, it could have been a lot bigger, uh, maybe more approaching more what Hulk was doing. But I think they could have done more to promote it because I've heard one criticism of the Obama administration efforts as that they didn't point enough to this right, um, right. with the stim- with Specifically the with homeowners. It was a yeah. lot, you know, really emphasized the the sort of bank bailout side of things, but less so the the homeowners. I've heard and, the same critique. And if you look at uh, at the files that I mentioned of the, the Hulk, Hulk's general administrative correspondence, they have a whole publicity section where they were eager to promote the effects of this program. Uh, so they're very conscious of that. That was part of FDR's kind of political appeal and, and, and New Deal emphasis. Mm-hmm. And then one final one I would mention that really took me by surprise and probably um, probably uh, applies more to the American South was there was this kind of hint in some cases of white paternalism and either individual letters from employers wanting to stick up for their employees and see if they could help them gain access to this. And then these really um, uh, strange sounding articles from uh, the Macon Telegraph that gave uh, the stories of three black borrowers who were helped by Hulk. And it it was in the trope of African-Americans being uh, not able to take care of themselves, you know, uh, needing assistance, protection from these predatory mortgage lenders. And in each case, mentioned that we discussed in the article it was a black borrower who was was you know being taken advantage of and didn't totally understand the terms of uh, of the mortgage they'd signed on to so Hulk was coming in and kind of helping them out which is really striking to me because this is this whole program is at taxpayer expense and you know one critique would be that we don't want to spend too much money on this but especially in the south I think those were powerful arguments there are a lot of distinctions being made between you know, black people who fit the kind of expectations of white Southern uh, employers and, you know, stayed in their place and behaved responsibly. So it's still, again, it's racist in its own way, but it's mm-hmm. possible that some of these um, black borrowers got consideration through the advocacy of powerful white financial interests and employers, which was something I was completely not expecting when I started delving into this research. Right. Sort of the the right outcome for the wrong reasons. Exactly. I had a quick question that I know in some ways to a historian is probably well-trod ground, but I think to our listenership is worth reiterating, particularly as we get closer to the end of the program. And that is something you've mentioned a couple of times, which is this relationship between the Hulk and the FHA. And going back, as you mentioned, as far as Kenneth Jackson, there was this understanding that I think is still the consensus that the FHA was, if if you really wanted to draw some sort of straight line to bad outcomes... Um, it would be easier to do with the FHA's redlining maps. But I think something that, that would help a lot of people, right, who aren't historians, is just to understand what was, to our knowledge, the relationship between the Hulk and the FHA. And, and uh, you know, in this particular question that I've always found very interesting, which is, you know, this issue of 
we now have better access than ever, uh, thanks to the Mapping Inequality Project, to the Hulk maps. But we, 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 are, we aren't nearly able to see, to the same extent, the FHA maps that we have reason to believe were, were so much more impactful. And I wonder if you could just kind of, you know, dish on that a little bit to, to help our listeners out. Absolutely. So, again, I, I, I don't want to fall into the kind of trap of saying which one was better or worse, sure. because, again, um, both did their part uh, and did a key role in kind of normalizing these kinds of racist practices in the real estate and home finance industry. And I would note from the outset that they're both kind of qualitatively different in that Hulk is a direct lending program where the federal government is actually buying up these mortgages at taxpayer expense and uh, you know uh, owning those properties, whereas the FHA is more um, incentivizing builders and their financiers to build in certain locations versus others. Hulk had a kind of set lifetime of 15 years after which it was liquidated, shut down. FHA has continued all the way into our present and has shifted its policies over the many decades it's been in existence. But there's a couple things here. Um, so these two government agencies have been portrayed as either collaborators, like uh, Kenneth Jackson's initial kind of assessment, to competitors, which was more um, Amy Hillier's assessment. And they actually were somewhere in between. They were they did actually have productive lines of communication. I discovered for my um, more recent article that just came out in the Journal of Planning History that Hulk's Mortgage Rehabilitation Division actually had offices in the same building as FHA for the first year of the project until wow. it was later moved a mile across town into the Hulk headquarters in DC. So it would have been so easy to just go right. up a couple <laughs> floors. And I have records of Corwin Fergus, the head of um, the city survey project, saying, hey, you could go and see if they have a map at FHA and see how it compares with ours and spend a couple hours over lunch discussing that. So they had these you know, uh, easy lines of communication and they had more formal connections. Uh, I mentioned earlier that one full set of these um, security maps was given over to FHA at the conclusion of the project. But there were also individual inquiries that were honored, for example, from Ernest Fisher at FHA requested a copy of the um, FHA map for Atlanta, and that was handed over. So, and that was an exception to these you know, no sharing policies. They also uh, 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 they they met in other kinds of settings. There was something called the National Housing Committee that organized something called the National Appraisal Forum in November 1937, and they would meet at a dining club in Washington D.C. once a week and compare notes on the housing market more generally. So these men all knew one another quite well and exchanged uh, information formally or informally. In that appraisal forum, they actually jointly planned that with private industry, with the uh, National Association of Real Estate Boards, with the uh, American Institute of Real Estate uh, Appraisers, with various different public and private housing agencies that came together and hosted a conference for over 1,000 attendees. And at this conference, they had a display of maps and books. And among those was the Philadelphia security map, redlining map. Um, so this you know, could be seen by up to 1,000 of these conference goers. And then actually in one of the presentations on stage, Corwin Fergus showed the Dayton, Ohio map and talked about the project. 
So, uh, you know, there are all kinds of different ways in which these two government agencies uh, collaborated and had open lines of communication. So I think that that's important to appreciate, even though they didn't make the same uh, redlining maps. Um, FHA, turns out, started making theirs about a year earlier. Hulk seemed to think that FHA's methodology was uh, less sound, but it does seem that FHA was even more stringent in terms of the areas that it rated um, negatively. So you see differences, but you know, kind of just different flavors on a on a on a similar theme. And then to give you the most up to date information, there actually um, has been some recent discussion about what happened to the FHA's redlining maps. And in 1980, Lynn Sagalin conducted interviews for her PhD dissertation research with some former FHA officials and uh, in Detroit. And they said that they had shredded their the FHA's redlining maps on the orders of the Nixon administration around 1969. That was in response to a lawsuit from a fair housing group. And so that was kind of buried in a footnote of this 1980 dissertation and has just started getting a little more buzz among historians through Twitter. I've helped to kind of spread that. But, you know, we still don't have um, confirmatory uh, evidence, you know, for what was the fate of those maps. And there have been a few that slipped through the cracks. My collaborator, Ladale Winling, was just at the National Archives last fall and found about four FHA redlining maps for Kenosha, Wisconsin. Mm among other places that had kind of um, been under our radar. So there there are a couple examples of um, FHA maps that survive, but again, nothing um, approaching what we have for Hulk, let alone private industry, which presumably had thousands upon thousands of these of these sorts of maps. Right. I mean, we the, the Hulk maps are this tremendous resource, but we it's important to remember we're sort of seeing the, the tip of an iceberg in, in some respects in terms of what people are actually operating on. Mm-hmm. For our last question here, there's so much nuance and complexity to this story, and I feel like we keep getting closer to you know the true or the full story. We'll probably never get there, but we're moving in that direction. And I'm just curious to hear what you think we should all take away from not just your research, but also this whole process of expanding and deepening our, our knowledge of, of what's gone on over these years and decades, and what directions you think this research could or should take in the future? I would say just that maybe we could be a little more aware of and appreciate the nuance and the important work that historians do that can only be accomplished through painstaking archival research. And we need to work together with social scientists and economists to arrive at the fullest picture. I think that oftentimes we're kind of portrayed as being uh, antagonists, but I think that it's more um, looking through different sides of the telescope, you know, looking at the larger kind of top-down level versus the more granular level. And I've done my share of outreach to and also debating with economists and sociologists on these topics. I also think it's important to understand how ordinary people feel viscerally when they see these maps and read these area descriptions mm. and not disparage or dismiss or minimize their experience. So right. even if people, you know, may use redlining as a catch-all term, you know, when they see how government evaluators wrote about their neighborhood where they live and where they've experienced the denial of 
financing on houses or businesses or other kinds of negative impacts, we can't just kind of tell them, well, you know, you can't be too mad at the government because Hulk actually did lend to African-American homeowners or whatever. Um, I do think if we ever wanted to say, put together an airtight case for reparations uh, to really truly um, uh, address the situation, we would have to put together a legal case that was more or less airtight and get the story straight in all of its complicated details. So I think that there's always a role for um, nuance and kind of moving the conversation forward, even though it's oftentimes difficult to grasp all the different nuances. Um, it's very complicated understanding federal housing policy and mortgages and uh, things of this sort. So uh, I think there's a lot of work to be done where we can continue to learn, especially how this played out on the local level. I think that is a great message to close on. Todd Minchney, thank you for coming on the Housing Voice podcast. Thank you, Shane. It's been my great pleasure. And also thank you, Michael, for uh, your questions as well. That was great to have you. You can read more about Todd's research on our website, lewis.ucla.edu. Show notes and a transcript of the interview are there too. The UCLA Lewis Center is on Facebook and Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Shane D. Phillips. And Mike is there at Michael Manville 6. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.